Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? Hello and welcome to the Second Reading Podcast for the week of July 13th. I'm Jim Henson, Director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm joined again today by Josh Blank, Research Director of the Texas Politics Project. Have you voted, Josh? I have, early, of course, because I can't wait. Uh, early and often or just early? Just early. It's all, you know. They only had so many finger protection devices, so I decided well, I would save them good. for others. Now there's a there's a I, I just saw this in a column. There's actual there's a technical name for those things and I can't remember what it is. Well I have an idea what I think the name is. Well, I think there's the name that everybody's calling them and then there's the name that they are. Oh, well, okay. as that all implies, it's election day in Texas, runoff election day, that is. So the two main political parties are making final candidate choices in races in which no candidate crossed the 50% mark in the March primary that was held in what feels like roughly a million years ago. Yeah, I think uh, it was a million March. years, a million years in two weeks. Yes, exactly. So today we'll talk a little bit about the context of that election. We'll probably hold off on, on detail discussion until after we get the results. Um, but we do want to talk a little bit about the context and maybe peg that and plug a, a blog post that we put together for today about the attitudinal context of that election. But first, we want to return to the topics of race policing and protests. For those that listened last week, we talked about the changing attitudes around the coronavirus pandemic uh, that we found in the just released UT Texas Politics Project poll, which we had collected data for in the last week of June, more or less. Uh, and we talked about how decreasing concern in June had likely contributed to the surge in the coronavirus cases that we're experiencing right now. Um, today, we want to go back to talking more about some of the findings from the poll rela uh, related to Texas attitudes about race, discrimination and policing. And, and again, just a little bit about the backdrop to this poll, which people can find at the Texas Politics Project website, uh, which is texaspolitics.utexas.edu. And then just hit polling and follow to the latest poll page is probably the most direct way to find all that. There's also a bunch of summaries if you follow the links there to the blog area. Um, you know, the initial idea in that poll was to follow up on a an April poll that we had done in our with our partners, the Texas Tribune, and which was very focused on COVID-19 and to look at the changes in the COVID-19 attitudes from April to June. Um, we planned another Texas Politics Project poll to do that because it was off schedule for the Tribune, um, but then, of course, thought it was important to add some of our trend items on attitudes about race and discrimination, as well as questions about the current topics at hand. So I think we ought to, you know, talk a little bit about that. And and they are they're important intrinsically, which is why we did it. Um, but also they they do form, I think, part of the context of everybody voting today. So 
We talked last week, I think we talked about this at the end of the podcast, the results of our standard discrimination battery. Now, those painted a pretty complex portrait of racial attitudes in the state, huh? Well, you know, yes. Let me just, let's start with the simple answer, <laughs> yes. which is, yes. That was, a, that that was is, sort of a softball. That was a softball, yes. A softball begging for elaboration. Well, I was going to say next. Are we done? No, okay. <laughs> no, I mean, that's right. But ultimately, you know, is is unsurprising here. This is this is complicated, right? I mean, you know, just not to pull back the curtain on polling a little bit here, but ultimately this is something that we think of as, as a high dimensionality issue. And what I mean by that is that it's complicated, you know? If we were to ask people, you know, whether they have a positive or negative attitude towards the color yellow, you know, that's just, a, that's yes or no. It's very simple. We don't have to think about it. When you ask about race and racism, well, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about systemic racism? Are we talking about race and policing? Are we talking about educational opportunities, healthcare? Are we talking about African-Americans, people of color? I mean, setting aside racism and going to the broader topic of discrimination, women and men, uh, you know, gender identity, sexual orientation. There's a lot of space here, which makes it a pretty broad and complicated topic that really doesn't allow itself for like, oh, well, let's just ask this one question, right? I think this, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so ultimately what that means is that we have a bunch of complicated data, but, you know, I think it's a, a paints a better picture. So, I mean, I think one of the things we may have flagged last week, but uh, uh, an approach that we've taken in the past is to ask people their perceptions of the level of discrimination that different groups face in society. And what we do is we give them a list of about 10 groups that includes uh, whites, African-Americans, Hispanics, Asians, men and women, gays and lesbians, transgender people, Christians and Muslims. Uh, and, you know, and these, you know, to the extent of why that's the 10 we picked, you know, we'd have to go back and actually think a lot about exactly what the what the particular reasons were, although I could think about some of them. Yeah, it was it was the context of the time in which there was a discussion of both race and both gender in terms of discrimination against women because of the Me Too movement and the ongoing discussion about uh, LGBTQ rights in the aftermath of the legalization well, of gay marriage and an influx of activism in that. Right, and then and then the intersection between that. that decision and the question about whether or not you know, Christians would be forced to participate in gay weddings or, or, you know, various right. activities like that, that then sort of led to this, I don't know if I'd call it a backlash, but this idea that has been, you know, present again before the extension yeah. of gay rights, but this idea I'd that Christians- a, a counter response almost. Yeah. Okay. That's fine. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this is all to say discrimination is complicated. And what we do is when we want to learn about it, as we begin by asking people how much discrimination they think each of these groups faces in society in the u.s today individually and part of the value in this is that we both get to you know again get a a broader sense of of where you know where people think discrimination lies this is important i always think this is super important when you're looking at any polling or any statistics which is the, the obvious question is well compared to what so in the most recent poll we'd say you know we found that 44 percent of texas voters said that african-americans face a lot of discrimination in the u.s today as opposed to some or not very much or, or none at all. And I think that brings the question, well, 44 percent is a lot. It's almost a majority compared to what? Well, we can say we can look two ways. We can look at other groups in the in that we've that we've discussed here and say, well, they say, you know, Texans, 44 percent say African-Americans face a lot of discrimination. That compares to 42 percent who say transgender people face a lot of discrimination. Thirty nine percent who say Muslims face a lot of discrimination. Twenty seven percent who say the same of Hispanics and so on and so forth. 
The other thing we could look at is say, well, how has this changed? And that's really, I think, where the the value in running the same questions multiple times falls, where we learned here that compared to 2018, when we asked this question, the set of questions the last time, the share saying that African-Americans face a lot of discrimination increased by about nine points from 35% to 44%. In 2016, when we asked it before that, it was only 30%. So we are seeing in Texas an increasing recognition of the discrimination faced by African-Americans but I mean, there's something else in all this. I mean, we've kind of talked about a little bit, which is, I mean, there's, there's sort of another headline, is, which is like, boy, discrimination is a pretty broad problem. I mean, based on people's perceptions of it, and that there seems to be a lot of discrimination to go around, at the very least. A lot of, per- yeah, or a lot of perceptions of it, so to speak. Well, yeah. You know, I mean. Yeah, you know, I mean, I don't. And the reality is somewhere in between there, I suppose, if, if we can want to talk about reality. Now, I think the thing that's interesting, you know, you raised the time issue there, is that Obviously, one of the reasons we were interested in rerunning that battery, which we had, this was what, the third or fourth time we had run that battery? Yeah, that's right. And, but we hadn't run it in a little, in a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, a couple of years. And obviously, the killing of George Floyd in police custody in Minneapolis occurred, and the protests that resulted from that were triggered, Mm -hmm. put it this way, were triggered by that, emerged in the interim. And so, that's a pretty big intervention in this. And and we saw some of this, you know, reflected in the question we asked about the protest responses. That's right. And I should also say, you know, it's a big intervention, but it's a big intervention where, you know, people move from different baselines, right? So of course, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, ultimately, you know, before jumping, you know, to the, to the protest, I just say, you know, Democrats moved, you know, in a direction to sort of acknowledge more discrimination faced by African-Americans after the recent protests, as did Republicans. But the difference is, is that Republicans were just moving from a much lower baseline than Democrats. So whereas, you know, in 2018, 35 percent of Democrats said that African-Americans faced the most discrimination of any of the groups that we that we tested uh, in June of this year, 60% said the same thing. For Republicans, there was also an increase, but it was from 7% who thought that African-Americans faced the most discrimination to 16% who thought that African-Americans faced the most discrimination. Just you know, keeping score at home, the group that faces the most discrimination, according to Texas Republicans, Christians, 28%. We can come back to that or not, but point being- well, I think we touched a, on it a bit last week. We touched on it worth, a bit last it's week. It's worth reiterating, yeah. Well, I just raised the point that people begin from different baselines. So then we asked again, do you have a favorable or unfavorable view of the protests that have occurred in response uh, to George Floyd's death? And overall, Texans were pretty mixed on that, which I think, you know, reflects an environment in which there's a lot of discussions both about, you know, the, pro, the, the let's say, the, the uh, desires of the protests and protesters themselves, but also, you know, some of the unrest that resulted as you know, I would say both at the hands of protesters and police, probably, in different cities across America. So in Texas, we found 43% of voters with a favorable opinion of the protests, 44% with an unfavorable opinion. Among Democrats, 72% held a favorable opinion. Among Republicans, 73% held an unfavorable opinion. So you know, some familiar partisan structure there, and you know that we don't have a good baseline on that particular item, but the baselines you talked about and the discrimination item certainly, I think, have to inform that to some degree. Now, we also put attitudes towards the police in that mix mm-hmm. as well. So, you know, we asked a, a couple of different questions about the police. 
We asked about police favorability, and then we asked about people's attitudes about how they might think of the death of African Americans in police custody, right? Yeah, I would say, you know, how, you know, I would think of maybe, maybe how they interpret the attitudes of Afri- yeah. you know, these deaths. I mean, to me, you know, and I, I, I wish I could figure out a better way to say this, and I'll just say it this way, and I apologize before I say it, but like, to me, this was the killer question in the battery. I mean, you know, this was like, this is the question that to me really tells us a lot about people's underlying perceptions of what the relationship between police and African-Americans are. So we said, you know, do you think that the deaths of African-Americans during encounters with police in recent years are, on the one hand, a sign of broader problems, on the other hand, isolated incidents? And this is kind of the, this is, this in a lot of way mirrors the political discussion we see after these incidents where, you know, a lot of the people, a lot of people who are, let's say, you know, looking to defend police officers writ large will point out and say, this is a bad apple. This is an isolated incident. This doesn't represent policing. Whereas others say, no, this happens far too often for us to say this is isolated because it, you know, at least it doesn't seem to be. So we asked, what, what do you think? Well, overall, slightly more Texans said it was a sign of broader problems than said it was in, that these were isolated incidents, 49% to 43%. But again, that same partisan structure emerges with 88% of Democrats saying these are signs of a broader problem and 76% of Republicans are saying these are isolated incidents. And I think the reason this matters if you're sitting here listening to this is if you're looking out there and trying to gauge the political response from both Democrats on the one hand who are looking at you know, probably broader systemic changes to policing and, and a lot of other things, and Republicans on the other who are saying, well, look, if we reform police practices, we can solve this problem. This is kind of, I think, you know, the fuel that leads to these different responses because their voters have different perceptions about what's going on. Well, I think and it contributes to, you know, the, I think over the longer term, obviously this is mm-hmm. not the first time that people have asked these questions. It's being asked in a more direct way. But if you look back at the, the longer historical scope of this, you know, you go back, for example, to the political response and what was then called the Kerner Commission, which was named by Lenny Johnson to examine the aftermath of the um, uprisings and, and the, you know, it was then, you know, this is really when the, the term came into use, the civil unrest mm, um, how, how, how from, nice. you know, that kind of emerges from, you know, the early, the, you know, the, the first, you know, kind of riots in American cities in 64 and 65. And then, you know, the, the recurrence of unrest after the killing of Martin Luther King in 1968, the discussion is strikingly similar. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, and and the emphasis on policing and racial attitudes is strikingly similar. And that was, you know, 60, you know, 50 years ago. And so I think these, these underlying predispositions about how you view these institutions have been there for a long time. And the partisan lines have been pretty close for a long time, allowing for some of the changes in the Democratic well, Party. Yeah, allowing for changes in like, you know, the regional distribution of the parties and things like that, right? Yeah. I mean, I guess what I wonder, I mean, I ask you, you know, I mean, because you brought this up a couple times, and I'm not as old as you are. So I don't I wasn't around. I mean, <laughs> congratulations. Well, I don't know if it's looking that great. Anyway, <laughs> that's a good question. Would, would I trade would I trade the late 60s and early 70s for the next 20 years? I don't know. <laughs> I know. Tough call. Um, 
Anyway. So it's an underlying, well, well, we'll put a pin in that. We'll put a pin in that. There's, that's, 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 got, that's a high dimensionality question. Um, but I guess what I, I mean, what I wonder is, you know, I mean, you said this before, right, that these are, you know, that they feel very similar. And I guess what I wonder is someone who's been, you know, watching public opinion for the last, you know, let's say clo- really closely for the last decade or so is it's notable how much we see sort of a surge in interest and in activism and then, and then it recedes. And we see this in the public opinion too, where this, you know, these issues become really important, you know, Democrats split one way, Republicans split another, or, you know, let's say as a society, there's more recognition, you know, around some of these issues. And then, you know, I hate, you know, there's no better way to say this, but we go back to normal or, you know, to basically the status yeah. quo. I mean, is there anything about this that looks different to you? I mean, in terms of your... Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I would say, you know, and, and we talked about this offline. Uh, you know, I think the thing that looks most different to me so far is that there has been a different... There is a broader and different kind of um, uh, range of discussion in how we are publicly asked to think about race. I think that, Mm. you know, the, you know, right now there is a discourse that comes out of, you know, a lot of academic and activist writing, Mm. you know, that is real, that is sort of caught under the umbrella of anti-racism that, you know, the idea that this is not just you know that that the that the response to this is not simply recognizing that there's a problem but having an active incorporation of the problem of racism into your attitudes mm-hmm. and i and what i mean by that is that i think mo- the biggest benchmark that was most commonly used in earlier discussions has been the idea that you're either a racist or you're able to not see color or be look at people in a kind of quote unquote colorblind basis. Right. And I think the, the there's a, a much more active part of the conversation that is moving that alternative farther out to saying, look, you know, the idea of a colorblind society is to some degree a fantasy. And the underlying sort of dynamic here is that, you know, if there's going to be a discussion of this, the discuss, the starting point for the opposition to racism has to be not just that it shouldn't exist, but that there has to be an active recognition of its existence, of its structural bounds. And you have to recognize that as the, as the fundamental position in opposing racism rather than saying, well, wouldn't it be great if race didn't exist or I can somehow dawn some kind of perceptive and attitudinal sort of position in which I don't see race. The bottom line is you can't not see race. And once you see it, you have to understand it as a hierarchy. Now that's a, you know, one can argue the usefulness, the validity of that, but I think that that position has become the, 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 uh, the opposing position and it's a much more powerful position, whether it, you know, how much, you know, it, I think based on, you know, keen on what you were saying earlier, it's very likely that, the you know, especially given the current context, it takes a lot of energy to sustain that. Yeah. But, you know, the kind of, uh, I mean, I think the optimistic view, if you're concerned about these issues, is that even if it recedes, it will, it recedes to, 
you know, a different higher level of discussion that makes some degree of progress on the issue. But I think if I look at something that's really different, the institutional and political responses, frankly, look fairly familiar, even right down to, you know, the corporate responses of, you know, sort of corporate groups giving money to Black Lives Matter and, you know, trying to recognize the situation and respond to it in a very public way. I mean, we begin, we saw that, we've seen that in recent, in, in, in previous periods as well. But the idea is, you know, are you, are you going further? And I think to go further, you do need an expansion of the discourse in the way that I'm talking, that I, that Mm -hmm. I think we're seeing, you know, I would look forward to us figuring out a way to, you know, to try to probe that. Well, I'm, you know, I mean, one thing I want to, I think you said this, but now I we're having a sure. work meeting in public. Just Well, it's okay. Well, no, I, well, let's do it. I mean, I'll say there's two things. I mean, one thing I want to, I want to say clearly, I think you said this, but I want to make sure it's clear is that, you know, race scholars and activists at this point would have gone even further and explicitly, again, you said this, I just want to make sure it's clear to, to the listeners here. You know, they've gone further than saying, you know, that a colorblind, the idea of a colorblind society is a fantasy to say it's actually detrimental. That you're right. actually ignoring the different institutional, uh, you know, facets of society that are making it so that, you know, the experience of people is not colorblind, whether or not they themselves try to be colorblind in their viewing of society. So that's sort of the other side of that. I mean, I think, you know, the other thing that kind of strikes me in this that seems to me like it could be different also, and I think Texas is a great example of this, is just the, you know, the increasing you know, honestly, diversity of the population and in particular of the younger population, right? So, I mean, ultimately, there's a, there's a raw political calculus to all this, which is to say, you know, you can't, you know, I mean, Texas is a majority, you know, minority state, you know, and it gets increasingly uh, minority dominated as you look at younger and younger cohorts, right? Ultimately, this is the future of the state, you know, in a place like Texas, but it's the future of a lot of states. And, you know, to the extent that the political system isn't responsive to these concerns, you know, that's going to create, you know, basic electoral problems. But then the other side of this, you know, that's kind of interesting, this is more the work meeting sort of idea here is, you know, I mean, what I'm curious to see is, you know, as, as there is movement forward on trying to address systemic racism, which requires seeing color and targeting policies to ameliorate the discrepancies, how do people who don't fall under those rubric, you know, basically under those policies, namely, you know, white people and white men, what does that reaction, white men in particular, actually, what does that reaction look like? Now, I'm not saying that, you know, things shouldn't happen because people are afraid of white men or, or whatever. I'm just saying that as of right now, we're in a moment where I think, you know, we're probably seeing a high watermark in terms of, you know, uh, interest and engagement with the topic. But once we start getting to the brass tacks of what, the amelioration looks like, I expect to see a pretty big shift in attitudes amongst some groups of people. Yeah. And, and, you know, who will shift in what direction, I think is a big, and, you know, there's a, you know, I mean, I think you're right to raise what are the, you know, again, not to be too wonky about this, but, um, you know, what are the material correlates of this expansion of the discourse we're talking about? I mean, you know, ideas don't take in a vacuum. <laughs> I love that you, I love that you preface that with not to be too wonky. Let's talk about <laughs> well, the material correlates. Yeah, basically, it's you know, it's like when somebody says to you, you know, I'm not trying to be ugly. They're about to get ugly with you. Um, right. No, no, <laughs> no offense. <laughs> but you know, but I, but you know, to be more you know direct or concrete about that, I mean, I you know, you know, 
the discourse has expanded and the bounds of the discourse have expanded in the direction of a more thorough kind of anti-racist mm-hmm. political position and, and discourse because there are different people involved in the discussion now, you know, mm-hmm. as well as, you know, the, and I think, I think we talked about this last week, you know, I mean, you, you can't really ignore, I don't think, um, you know, the, you know, the ease with which, you know, images and, and, and experiences are propagated, you know, via mm-hmm. more individual, you know, I you know, ironically what we call social media, but is also more individualized media. In other words, you know, the idea mm-hmm. that, you know, there's no, you know, there's no, uh, there's no controlling the image of George Floyd's death. Nope. Right. Just as, you know, and, and it, and it has, and it has led to, you know, a discussion of, you know, if we saw this, what are we not seeing? Well, but the it, fact it was that you could that, see yeah. that and that that and other images propagate so, you know, so broadly and so quickly and are so difficult to control by, um, well, I'd even you know, say the, has also you know broadened the discourse. That discourse is rooted in experience. You know, when I would say the attempts to control those images actually leads in the opposite direction, right? So when there is an incident under question, and, and police department in any jurisdiction says, "Well, we're going to hold on to the body camera footage," now they're automatically met with a certain degree of skepticism and suspicion that maybe you know that probably you know they never faced for most you know yeah. really honestly for most of the country's history. And so it's just a different. I mean, that I mean that way that's a, you know a good point. I mean that is something that is fundamentally changed and change in a way that's not reverting back because it's just not possible. You know, and, and again, you know, the, the, the dynamic is complex because we're also, you know, it's not as if, you know, per the numbers you were sharing, everybody has shifted in that direction. And so, right. you know, for example, one of the things that's not changed, you know, drastically, although there's been some change underneath our attitudes toward the police, which we have to, you know, I mean, we have a series of questions about, you know, whether people view the police favorably or not. And I think, you know, these are interesting, you know, these are interesting numbers in very subtle ways, you know, mm-hmm. in part because there's no evidence, despite what I think um, you hear from some corners that the public has turned against the police wholesale. Yeah, no, no, there's no, I mean, there's no evidence of that. I mean, I would say, you know, so in our most recent poll, 55% of Texans had a favorable view of the police, 30% had an unfavorable view. We've asked this three times before in 2019, 2017, and 2015. And the favorability numbers were always about the same. Um, you know, what you find is that, you know, Republican attitudes towards the police have remained essentially unchanged with the vast, vast majority of Republicans with a favorable view, 84% in the most recent poll. What has changed, though, is, is Democratic views. Now, again, the Democratic Party is a more diverse and younger coalition who are going to just tend to have different attitudes about a lot of these issues that we're talking about. And the police fall kind of maybe fall out of that, actually, in terms of how they view it. So in 2015, for example, 40 percent of Democrats had a favorable view of the police. Thirty five percent had an unfavorable view. So certainly ambivalent. It wasn't as though, you know, Democrats were just, you know, waving police flags around or if there's such a kind of police flags exist but in 2020 they they, they didn't probably early on but they do now oh they do now right okay uh but in 2020 uh in their last poll 27 percent held a favorable uh view of the police that's a 13 point decline from 2015 53 percent held an unfavorable view so almost a 20 point increase in unfavorable opinion so 
it's happening, but it's not, as you say, it's not as though, you know, I think what, I mean, just, it's not as though there's this overwhelming negative view towards police. I'm going to say even, you know, among African-Americans, 30% hold a favorable view of the police, 44% hold an unfavorable view. The remainder choose either to be neutral or, or don't have an opinion. So, I mean, even amongst, you know, the group that's sort of being highlighted as those being targeted by police, it's a little bit more complicated than just, you know, oh, there's rampant anti-police sentiment. There's really not rampant anti-police sentiment. There's a certain amount of ambivalence and it's getting worse. And I think, you know, I think we've written and I, I'm happy to say this, it's partially getting worse with police departments inability to address the concerns of the people they serve. I mean, ultimately, you know, I mean, I say this all the time and it's, it's, it's kind of funny, you know, when you think about it, but police are, are you know, the government official you're most likely to interact with. Um, and this is true generally, but, you know, it's certainly true in, you know, these urban communities that are actually resource poor. The police might be the one person you're going to interact with. And, you know, and this is actually part of the broader discussion about, you know, sort of the defund the police movement, which is to say there's a bunch of things that police officers are also being asked to do that have really little to do with police work, like mental health work, keeping, you know, truancy officers in schools, things that are really not what we, you know, technically think we're paying police officers to do, but something that actually makes their interactions with citizens um, more frequent and more varied. But I think we also see that in these numbers again, which is, you know, for different people, you know, their experiences with police are going to be vastly different. And it's not, you know, some sort of overwhelming negative, uh, you know, basically let's, you know, anti-police party. I, I think that's right. And I think that, you know, that, that institution, you know, that attitude toward the institutions is one of the things that we're going to have to watch, I think, carefully as you, you know, you, as we contemplate what might be different this time, what might not be different. As I said, you know, the, the questions about policing that we're facing right now are not new. The terrain has been changed by some mm -hmm. things, as you say, the, the underlying shift in demographics, you know, the kind of, uh, you know, shot in the arm that police militarization got after 9-11. Mm -hmm. um, but the underlying questions about, you know, what the police as an institution should be and how they should operate and, and how they interact in particular with communities of color have been around for a long time. And, and it's now, you know, you know, ask me in, in five years about this question of, you know, what's different this time? And a big part of my answer to that would be what the outcome of that conversation is and whether, you know, what what the the institutional dynamic looks like and whether there's real change in that area or not so yeah and i, and I would also say, i mean you know i think this might go where you want to go it might not but i mean i think it's also going to be interesting to see how people interpret the changes that we experience over the next five years i mean kind of what i said at the outset which is to the extent that more active policy is put out there to ameliorate these differences you know how do different groups react to those policies but i mean i would also add you know we had another question here about Confederate statues and what should be done with Confederate statues. And we've asked this question a few times. And without going into the specific numbers, you know, what we try to do is actually do a, a range. So it's not about removing or keeping them where they are, but we say, you know, basically a four-point scale. Should they be removed from public view? Should they be, you know, basically, I'm sorry, I should say Confederate statues on public property. So should those statues be removed from public view? Should they be removed from the basically the public property but moved somewhere like a museum or somewhere else? Should they be left, you know, where they are, but with additional historical context provided, which is what some people argued for a while, hearing that less today, 
or should they basically just be left where they are as is? And the share of people who said they should be left where they are as is has, has significantly declined since the last time we asked it. The share of people who say they should be removed in one way or another has significantly increased. But what's interesting, I think, you know, in all of this, as you're saying, you know, let's let's see where we are in five years, is, is you know, is what, again, the sum total of these, but you know, more symbolic versus more policy-driven actions are, and how, again, voters in different groups and different blocks of voters interpret uh, these actions with respect to both, you know, I think improving, uh, you know, just race relations in the country, uh, but also how they perceive it affecting them personally. And that's, you know, I, I think we can really, it's really easy right now to underestimate the extent to which, you know, a significant minority of people is going to feel like moves to ameliorate, you know, racial challenges somehow affects them negatively. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, the big question about who, you know, who, who is going to embrace this, who is going to resist it, you know, among those who are resisting these changes, how are they going to resist it? Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, how big is that? And, you know, that will leave itself, you know, we'll get some, we might even get a few leading indicators on that when we see the election results today. We didn't really get to talking about the election, but since, you know, it's election day and people are just yeah. voting we'll come back to that next week. So uh, I think with that, I'll thank Josh for being here. Thank our technical crew in the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the University of Texas at Austin. And we will talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening and be safe out there. And if you haven't voted and can safely do so, please do. And wear a mask. Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. 